welcome back to Beers, Birds and Bongos and Bears. This, my name's Ben Hobson, that was weird, sorry. Uh, I'm here to talk to, well actually today's a little different. I am here today, I am talking to three remarkable authors. I'm talking to Jeremy Lachlan, Mark Smith and Mirandi Rewo. And I thought for a little fun, January 1st, welcome to the new year, we do a little something a little different. I've asked each of these authors what has been their favorite read in 2022 and then how has that book you know maybe possibly shaped them and their writing how you know when you read something in your craft a lot of the time it'll speak to you in different ways and make you really then invest in your own craft in a different way so i've asked these three authors to come on the pod today and they're going to be a bit quick here and there but um, we're going to do some other stuff as well which is heaps of fun um Jeremy actually has a book coming out early uh, this year. I guess when you guys are listening to this, it'll be January 1st. So um, Jeremy has a book coming out this year. Randy has one coming out in September. And Mark recently released um, a short story collection uh, based on a song called Kelly called Mike Went Walking. So these are three authors, very current in the industry, and they're all remarkable, and I love them. And I will be having them on throughout the course of this year to do a long having them all on to do a wonderful podcast at some stage this year. Um, speaking of all of those different things that are awesome, also my new book is coming out at the end of January, February 1st or 2nd. Uh, it's called The Death of John Lacey. I would really appreciate you all checking that out if you get a chance and um, hitting me up on socials and let me know what your thoughts are. I'm very excited for this book to come out, but obviously always extremely nervous for a new book to come out and hit the shelves so um yeah i would love to hear positive feedback and i guess if you don't like my book that's okay too genuinely that's okay too i actually enjoy hearing um, everyone's reactions to my work and if you are reading it then i appreciate you regardless i'm pretty sure i do anyway <laughs> Sorry, that's good. all right um, but let's head on into our three chats. I think we'll start with Jeremy, and then we'll head into Mark, and then we'll finish with Mirandi. But uh, yeah, thanks to those authors for being a part of this, and I hope your new year is treating you extremely kindly. All right, well, Jeremy, hello. Welcome to... Uh, what am I doing? <laughs> I, I can't tell you that. That's, that's Yeah, no, that's, I should know. I just got home from work. I'm just... Oh. So, Jeremy, you're here today to talk about, Jeremy, what what has been some of your, what has been your most favourite book you've read this year? It doesn't have to have come out this year, it doesn't necessarily, it's just something you've picked up and read and something that's really stuck with you this year and I guess, yeah, why, why did it stick with you? So, my favourite read this year was actually uh, from last summer, uh, so I started the year with this book uh, wow. and it has stayed with me all this time. It's Sarah Winman's wonderful novel, Still Life. Um, I have recommended this book to so many people over the past year. I've now wow. I feel like I've built up this little army of of Still Life lovers now because they all get back to me and say how it's now in their top five of all time. What, of all time? Well, yeah, for me definitely, and several other people have said the same. It is wow. The most extraordinary novel. Um, it was Dimmick's book of the year last year. Yeah. Um, 
And I could I can completely see why, because it's just filled with wanderlust. And particularly after the last three years we've all had with the pandemic and everything. Yeah. It was just so wonderful to sit down and read a book that is so joyous and so lovely, but filled with the most incredible writing as well. So often when I was reading, I don't know if you get this, but you, you read someone else's writing and you get a little bit of depression seeping in because you know that <laughs> you will never be able to write this beautifully yes. yep. in your life. Yeah. Um, um, Sarah, Sarah, um, Sarah Bailey, actually, she said she used this word gelspiration, which is like you're equally inspired <laughs> and jealous at the same time. And I always think of that because I definitely get that. Yeah. You're like, oh, dang, like, how did you do this? Yeah, you have those. I love that gel inspiration. You have those. You, you, like uh, the amount of times I'd stop reading and just gaze into the distance uh, a bit. And oh just, wow, uh, it's, it's just one. It's, of, it's one of those books, hey. Like I like that you read it this year and it's in your top five. That's pretty full on, man. Like that doesn't. They don't come around that often. I find like it's a, every couple of years and maybe every decade sometimes. But yeah, absolutely. Awesome. It's just, it's that feeling of knowing that I am going to revisit it several times throughout my life i think i mean i had a similar experience with her book tin man um uh, sarah women so still life uh, it's it's uh, starts off in 1944 and is about this young soldier ulysses temper who uh shares this kind of extraordinary evening with this uh woman in her 60s she's an art historian possible spy we're never quite sure on that yeah um and from that one night it's not a, it's not a romantic or sexual kind of kind of thing but they just share this beautiful experience and then uh, from there, the novel kind of spans decades as we see how that night affected and shaped both of their lives, particularly Ulysses as he moves from England to Florence, um, and starts his new life with this motley crew of these wonderful characters. Um, I, it, it made me laugh. It made me cry. I, I didn't want to put it down, but then I actually did. And so I, I know Sarah, she's a friend of mine. Yeah. Um, and I, I, I admitted to her that about a quarter of the way from the end, I had to put the book down for, and I stopped for about a month. And it sounds oh, really weird. But it sounds like I, I wasn't liking anything. I was loving it so much. I didn't want to, to leave that world. That's incredible. And, leave that that feeling that I got from reading these characters and being with these characters because it, it had been quite some time I think because since I'd I'd read a book that really kind of captured me in that way and I I, I'd, I don't know what you were like but I'd had a really tough time trying to write during the pandemic mm. um, I was feeling kind of clogged and just dead inside uh, yeah, yeah really trying to write a kind of yeah kind of like trying to write a fun rollicking action adventure when it feels like the walls are closing in. Uh, was was really difficult and yeah for sure um, yeah but this book it just reminded me how beautiful reading can be and just oh, gave me that that feeling I hadn't had in such a long time. Of I want to read wrapped. this book like this is yeah, yeah I, I feel like I, I don't, I'm not I, I don't feel like I'm overhyping it because I genuinely believe it's that great. Yeah, wow. It's actually so people listening at home. We're recording this uh, actually quite early December because um, everyone's sort of gearing up for Christmas break. So I'm sort of sneakily getting some great Christmas reading ideas. <laughs> um, this sounds incredible. Like having a book that makes you fall back in love with reading. I think like I'd really like to read that book for sure. Yeah, and 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 even fall in love with writing. I think that's a thing for me um, mm. as, as well because it was. Like I said, you, you, I did get that. What, what was it? Gelspiration. Gelspiration kind of, kind, of, kind of thing. But it, it did just 
make me want to play on the page a bit more in my own writing. Uh, and I know it's something that so cool. Sarah worked really hard on with this book to kind of recapture her joy of writing and to really put that that joy on the page. Because I, I think in the writing world, in publishing, things that are joyous and things that are comedic, I, I talked about this on a different podcast recently, it, it's still seen as less than gritty yeah. fiction, I yeah. think. Um, but so weird. much work goes into it. Yeah, well, I think it's weird because I think there's... There's a degree of like it's almost like we distrust sentiment because it seems cheap. I think, yeah, yeah. Where like sentiment and sentiment can be cheap and it can fe feel very manipulative, but like true sentiment that feels earned emotionally earned from the book and the writing, I think is I think is harder to do than darkness. Like darkness is my playground. I can play in darkness, but to try to have someone actually be moved in a way of joy. Like, that's incredible. Yeah, and 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 to then make somebody laugh out loud. I mean, comic, comedy, I think, is the most specific mm. thing. So much easier to shock somebody than to actually make them laugh out loud. Mm. Uh, and to, to get, and it's something, again, I, I try and do that in my writing to kind of make someone laugh on, on one page and make them genuinely terrified or even cry on the next page. That I, I love that kind of interplay. Yeah, between the for laugh. sure. I had... um. That was actually my next question for you. And we're talking about it now, which is, you know, how has this book impacted your writing? But um, there's always this anecdote. I remember Steven Spielberg talking about Jaws. I don't know whether you've seen Jaws um, recently, if you remember that film very well, but there's a scene yeah. where um, Roy Scheider's character's throwing chum out the back and he says something like, see, come down here and shovel some of this shit. And it's... Back in the 70s, that got a really big laugh because it was a bit, oh, he's, you know, he's playing on provocateur, like he said, a swear word. Um, yeah, yeah. So he's shoveling this. But as he says it and Steven Spielberg heard the crowds laugh and the laugh came up and then he had the shark come out of the water right next to him. And so the laugh was like, ha, 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 and they started to scream. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah. And he said that was one of the best, like he's been forever trying to capture that moment again of trying to... It's like I heard someone else say too. It's like you, true emotional response comes from surprise, and so mm. a true laugh is where it's a surprising thing that's a play on something, you know. And a true feeling of fear is a jump scare or something like that. But a true feeling of joy as well is like it'll emotionally surprise you a little bit. And that's yeah, you know, yeah. I always think of that stuff when I'm writing. Is that something that you took away from this book, especially? Uh, yeah, uh, absolutely. Uh, just like you said, it's 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 nothing forced in, in this book. It, it is a genuine joy that is that is kind of stirred throughout the the reading experience. And I don't know. It, as I said, it, it made me want to. It made me want to do better uh, as an author, which is which is something. That, uh, you know, I, I, I get I've, been, I've been thinking about that a lot. You know, I, I still feel like I'm beginning i've just my, my my third book just went to print yesterday which i'm very excited about that comes oh, out man. in march next year but i still feel like i'm i'm a beginner at this and in some way i always want to feel that mm. i always want to feel like i can do better with my next one i mean imagine looking back on your career as an author and thinking that the first thing you wrote was the best i think that's the mm. most depressing thought imaginable so we we <laughs> I, I constantly want to push myself to, to do better and books like this just remind me how how great writing and, and the reading experience can be. And I, I want to give that experience to people picking up my, picking up my book. 
it's weird because it's completely different tonally to what like i write action adventure fantasy novels kind of thing so in some ways it couldn't be polar opposites uh my book and sarah's but uh yeah it's i also love that cross genre kind of kind of thing i I never want to read or write one thing yeah yeah and i think i think like i i don't I don't necessarily um, mind which genre I read in. If the story is good to me, you know, it'll do all these different things. But it's such a, yeah, it's uh, just hearing you speak, it's almost like a relief, like a book that gives you permission to feel a sense of life, you know, in, in, in your mm. reading. I think, I think, I think literature, ooh, like fancy literature, it can yeah. be synonymous with this type of like, de- I would say maybe depression art or just like grim and the world is bleak and yeah, the world can be bleak, but there is some hope in these um, joyful little moments that we can create and carve out for ourselves. And uh, it's <laughs> a book that reinforces that and does it in a genuine way. Like, yeah, I'm going to write down the name <laughs> of the, the book, man, because I've got to yeah, absolutely. Uh, read that over uh, the, the great. Sarah Women, it's, I honestly can't recommend it enough. I haven't read all of Sarah's books. I've read Tin Man, but I, I want to read When God Was a Rabbit. Uh, and go back through her her, her kind of catalog, her back catalog. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. Can I can I ask you what your pick for the year has been? No, that's not no. Okay, yeah, you can. Um, <laughs> <I've> actually, <laughs> no one turns it back on me. Um, honestly, the book. I'll be real. The, the book that I really did find the most that I got the most out of this year would probably be, and I'm going to probably butcher the title. It was called Faith, Hope, and Carnage. I think. And it right. was uh, it was like a series of interviews with Nick Cave about his process and about his art, and I just found it so interesting and moving. Him describing the process of grief when he lost his son and and the gift of of grief. I don't know, man. It was just it was really profound, really moving, and really made me think about art in a lot of different ways. I think. You know, I've read a lot of books this year, but just, you know, instinctually looking back and thinking like which one stood out to me the most, it would be probably that one. No, no, you know, I'll have to, what was it called again? Faith, Hope and I Carnage. I think it's Faith, Hope, Carnage. Yeah, I actually, see, I should have probably prepared a little bit. Hang on, you know what? No, no, I have that's... podcasting here, guys, typing into Google. <laughs> Heck yeah. Faith, Hope and Carnage. I got it right, yeah. So it's by it. Nick Cave and Sean O'Hagan, and Sean is interviewing um, Nick. And it's during covid and it's just, it's a really interesting series of interviews about his process um, in creating mm. things. Like he talks about creating these little um, clay sculptures. It's just, it's really, and I love Nick Cave as well. So hear him talk about his faith and all those sorts of things. It just really spoke to me. Um, no, that's yeah. wonderful. No, I, I, love, I love stories about grief. I, I like that so many more people, well, maybe people always have been talking about it. maybe it's just that I've been noticing it more, but there's a lot of conversations about about grief. I don't know if, mm. again, because of the experience of the pandemic, people are talking about it a lot a lot more, but, mm. um, you know, I lost my dad years ago and anytime something deals with grief, it really does hit a, hit a nerve. Mm. Uh, um, and, it, yeah. And from what he was saying too, that it was, it's messy and ugly and he didn't deal with it well but in in the not maybe not dealing with it well I mean even saying that it just feels a bit strange you know just classify something as well done like grief you know what I mean like it just sort of was it was really insightful but it was also really human and really vulnerable I thought 
um, which is, yeah, I think we can, I, I love books that have a bit of mess in them. Like I feel like we tend to pretty things up and put on a bit, you know, put on our best clothes when we go out in front of public, but books can kind of be these ugly little insights into the mess that we can create for ourselves and, and have created well, for so us. Human. So, yeah. Human. Yeah. That's actually, <laughs> I think that's a good way of putting it. I think that's, I responded to the most was just how human it felt and like hearing a master like Nick Cave talk about, his process in this way where he doesn't really know what he's doing sometimes, <laughs> you know, it just felt really nice. It was nice to hear. I thought, yeah. Oh, beautiful. Oh, I'm, yeah. I'm glad. Yeah. I'll, I'll have to, you know what, if, cause I'm doing a few of these, you're the first one I'm doing these interviews yeah. and I'm going to release like a little series of everyone. Um, I might have to change my answer. If other people ask me, we'll see. <laughs> Can't say the same thing every time. <laughs> That's all right. I, I hope you don't mind me turning back on you. No, like, no, it's nice, man. I appreciate yeah. it. Yeah, no, I really, yeah. It is funny to look back. I've no, Yeah, I've never thought about, like, if I get interviewed on my own podcast, what book I'd pick as my favourite book. I don't know. We'll see. We'll see what happens. Maybe, yeah. maybe next year. Maybe this year. I've been wanting to do a long one with you. For, it's, it's, yeah. I don't know if you, I don't know how many, you do interviews as well here and there with podcasts and things like that. Yeah, I've done a few. Yeah. 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 I always find it that I have this list and I'm like, oh, I really want to talk to this person. Oh, really? And I've only got so much time and so many yeah. months in the year. Yeah. Um, because yeah. you're still you're still you teaching full time still? Yeah, but I'm actually moving to um point eight next year. So I'll be uh, doing okay. Yeah, I'm gonna have Tuesdays to do sort of author admin stuff so do podcasting yeah. and i teach a little bit and things like that so right yeah i'm a bit nervous yeah. about the pay cut um <laughs> <laughs> but yeah. i am excited for the day like and i thought it, what a good opportunity i could wake up in the morning and i could make it like a breakfast with dad with my with my boys and yeah you know make it a, a really meaningful day so i'm looking forward yeah. to it but um, yeah yeah you yeah, just gotta we'll have that you just got to have that routine that you that you make sure sort of guides those days. That's how my my problem went because I I quit full time work completely, and mm. um, and I found that I thought oh I've got all this time to write and I just wasn't writing, mm. you know. And it wasn't until I set myself a really formal rigid routine yeah. that I got work done. Yeah, you know, I just had to get up every morning and you know six thirty go down work for three hours regardless. Yeah. Yeah, you know whether I felt like shit or not, and whether I felt that I was writing was shit or not, and uh, and but I go and do it. And the really interesting thing is that when you go back and you do all your revisions, you can't tell the days when you thought you were writing shit from the days when you thought you were writing really well. You know, That's like it's bizarre the way right. we delude yeah. ourselves. You are very right with that. Um, yeah. Just for podcast people, I'm talking with the wonderful Mark Smith. Uh. Um, we're talking about Mark's favourite book over the last year, but we're obviously also talking about, um, yeah, I, I guess our lives. But, yeah, I, just, I've, I mean, like the number of times where I go, I write disciplined through the school term and then I hit school holidays, I'm like, yes, mm. time, like days of time. And then yeah. I blink and then the school holidays are over and I've done nothing. Like I feel like when I have less time to spend writing if i have that half hour i am smashing it 
because yeah. it's so valuable. But like when I have too much of it, it's almost like I treat it like it's not as vital. I don't know. It's weird. Yeah. You've got to kind of set those, set your own deadlines. Mm. Um, and uh, I don't know about you, but I'm, if, I don't have a, if I don't have a deadline, I'm a lazy writer. If I have a deadline, I'm a gun. I can go for it, you know. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm going to have to. Give me a deadline. I think it'll be like, you know, breakfast in, in with the boys in the morning, take them to school, like prep their lunches and stuff, and then, you know, an hour of admin doing um, social networking stuff, an hour of yeah. updating yeah. podcast stuff and interviews and doing my schedule, and I'll have to map it out that way, I think. But, yeah, I'm pretty yeah. excited. I'm excited. Imagine yeah. having time to think about what you're going to write with without... I don't know what that's, that's going to be the, like. That's the, that's the great blessing of... Uh, well, one of the, for me, you know, doing those those three hours writing in the morning, and I, I I'm done by nine thirty. That's my day, you know. Mm. But then, but then I find that for the rest of the day, I'm thinking about what I've written and where I'm going to go from there. And it's having that great headspace mm. to be able to do that. And I can do that when I'm out riding my bike or going for a surf or walking on the beach. Um, and that writing away from the desk for me is a really important part of the process. Yeah, absolutely. There's been a few times where I've I've had to pull the car over and I put the dictate thing on the phone and I read something, I say something out to the phone and then later on I find it and email it to myself. But yeah, when you're in it, you're always thinking about it, I think. Yeah, yeah. Whatever works. Whatever works, that's the one. Um, so this, this um, podcast will hopefully be out around January 1st, but I wanted to talk to you and a few other authors as well about what has been over the course of this year one of the most important reads of your year and then second part to that question is there anything from that particular novel or even non-fiction book that you think you'd like to start to incorporate into your own practice you know was it a was it a, a, a yeah capturing a feeling or a piece or but yeah mark what is what is your favorite book from the year uh my favorite book for the year has been the new gary disher book day's end I've been hearing and, nonstop about this book. I'm really excited yeah. to read it. Uh, it's the fourth book in the Hirsch series, um, so which began with uh, Bitterwash Road. Uh, then there was Peace and Consolation, and I'm always, I'm always, you know, it, people would, it's, it's going to your local bookstore. It'll be on the crime shelves, yeah. And I, I, you know, all of that genre stuff about where we place things is very much about just how it's marketed, but. To me, good writing is good writing, regardless of what genre it's in. Mm. And I honestly think that Gary Disher is one of our best writers, full stop. Yeah, yeah. That's genre, awesome. Yeah. Uh, one of our best writers. So, and I read across all genres, you know, crime, lit fiction, cli-fi, spec fiction, young adult. And, and I, what I go looking for is the good writing. Yeah, you know, not so much where it's where it sits on the bookshelves. So I remember when I was in a band, I had um, the best musicians I knew would just listen to every piece of music. Mm. They listened to pop. They listened to like this weird mathcore, eclectic reggae. Like they listened to everything because they just loved the craft of music. And I feel like good authors do the same thing. They just love words and reading, and that's really cool to hear. But what was it about Gary's book that like really? really spoke to well, you off the page. Yeah, look, the, the first thing was that it, it, in some ways it was almost like a comfort read for me because I've, I've read and loved the first three. Mm. Um, so I know where I'm gonna, what I'm going to get from Gary Disher. Yeah. Um, 
But it's also a really good example of uh, of context for when you actually read a book. And I just finished reading Denison, um, the James Mackenzie Watson book, mm. which was which I thought was excellent, but it was really disturbing yeah. and challenging yeah. in its content. Um, and I wanted to go back somewhere then where I felt I knew I was in really good hands. <laughs> um, so, so with Day's End, I went back to this familiar place with this character that I knew, yeah. this character first, you know, the lone copper in a country town, South Australian wheat belt, um, going about his everyday routines, um, you know, his, his, his long-range patrols and his welfare checks and there's stolen sheep and there's the tennis club committee meetings. And I kind of knew that's what I was going to get. Um, but Bishop, I mean, he, he'll lull you as a reader into that false sense of security too and then suddenly <laughs> there's a body in a suitcase, you know, um, and it kind of jumps right. out at you and I love the way he does that to you as a reader. That um, is cool. That is really great. And it's still, um, you still left it though feeling that sense of comfort and joy and fun in something familiar. That's really cool. Yeah. Um, and I, I think there's definitely a place for comfort reads. Yeah, <laughs> you know? I agree um, for sure. Yeah, I think some but of I, my favorite. I think the re- you go, mate. Um, I think the real strength of the, of the Hirsch novels is um, is the protagonist himself. You know, who's so beautifully fleshed out by by Gary Dish. We know all of his foibles, his habits, his insecurities, his strengths, <laughs> um, and he's deeply he's deeply human. Mm. Um, and and deeply human in the way he thinks and the way that he acts. It doesn't mean he doesn't stuff up, he doesn't make mistakes, but um, they're human mistakes. Uh, And I I love that. That that character, that protagonist, for the same protagonist to take you through four books, Mm -hmm. that's that's an incredibly well-fleshed-out character. Yeah. and uh, the other, the other really important thing for me with the with the Hirsch novels is the setting, um, and it's integral to the to all four novels. The sort of wheat belt, South Australian, isolated, you know, and not mm. just the isolation, but the human behaviours that come about because of that isolation, mm. which he, he portrays really well. Um, and whereas in the previous novels, you know, that it had all been about very noirish, there was drought and fail crops and fires, and but now there's been rain and the country's alive and there's yeah. wildflowers and uh, and the fields of you know canola stretching out from the you know in the distance from the highway. Um, mm-hmm. So the setting becomes a character in itself, and I love that. That um, is cool. I, even when things are going well for the locals, though, it doesn't kind of detract from the noirishness, yeah, if you like, yeah. the, the feeling it's evoked by the isolation. That's a really um, tricky balance to strike. Like it's a, It is. It's a, it's a really difficult balance, but um, but he draws that setting so beautifully and, um, and all through the eyes of Hirsch, of course, who's, uh, who's a little bit of a fish out of water because he's actually a city copper who's, and he's seeing it through the eyes of a city copper who's gradually coming to terms with the environment he's in and the people he has to deal with, you know, very different from what he had back in the city. So, yeah, yeah. Um, that so, awesome. But, I mean, the second, the second part of your question, Ben, um, what, yeah. do I, what can I apply to my own writing? Hmm. Uh, this is, like, I mean, this is a writer at the top of his game, yeah. absolute top of his game, and the writing just seems to be effortless. And we know it hasn't been. We know he would have read really hard. I hate reading that where you're like, oh, oh damn. <laughs> yeah, how did he do that? 
Um, and, and it's that great thing of a writer working really hard to make it appear to be effortless. Oh, that's amazing. Which, which I, you know, I love. Yeah. Um, I love the way he has multiple narratives that are all bound together by the one character but mm. seem to go off on all these tangents but somehow he manages then to mesh them back together into the single overarching storyline. And that's just, God, I don't know how he plans it out and how he works it, but he does That'd it. That'd be very interesting well. to ask him, hey, like, you wonder, you want, because when you read those books where it does, it goes off in all these directions, but somehow they're able to keep exactly all I need to sort of put a placeholder on this narrative, you know, part. Yeah. And then I'm over over here, but I'm not forgetting this. And they bring me back at the exact right time. So I haven't yeah. forgotten and it's all. That's right. And really, I think it's really hard. I think it's, uh, I think it's, a, it's bravery in the writing. It's having okay. the confidence to do that. Um, and I think what it does, what he does really well and I really like is he's not afraid to challenge the reader to keep up. Mm. Like not over explaining everything and it's a trait of a really confident writer this is what i you know this is what i love to be able to bring into my writing um and i think in a similar way to uh like the late great peter temple what peter temple used to do as well because i could read i could read four or five pages of a of peter temple especially his dialogue yeah. and i think god what the hell is going on i'm not and it's almost like him reaching out of the page and saying keep up will you you know just keep up yeah and that's that's incredible confidence in their own writing, which I it's love. It's also incredible confidence in their reader, though, right, too. Yeah. Like, it's like they're trusting us to keep up with them. That is a very, yeah, because it, it is a, an instinct to hold the hand of the reader uh, maybe a little bit too often, I think. Um, and it's yeah. really hard to, again, that's a balance, right? Like, you don't want to yeah. give not enough, but you want to give enough so people can keep up. But, yeah, no, to sort of go stuff it, I'm going to write how I like. <laughs> Yeah, good, eh? yeah. Um, and when we when we are being cautious, we tend to have too much exposition and not enough, yeah, um, not enough, as we say, placing that confidence in the reader that they'll be able to keep up. Mm. Um, and it, in some ways, it's giving the reader like the bones of the story and allowing them to piece it together, not entirely for themselves, but with the aid of the writer for the reader. So in that way, the you know the the reading becomes a creative thing in itself, not just mm. the writing, but um, but reading. that's what's going on in your head while you're reading this, that. while you're reading the story. I love that, man. With, with my um, with my new book, I had um, I actually got a guy um named Tim who he he's just he likes the same kind of ruthless writing as you're describing. Like he loves that just cut to the bone and just get rid of every little extraneous thing. So I sent him a copy of the book and he just came back with lines through so much and like you don't need this. You've said this well over here. You don't need to say this. And yeah. um, it was so helpful. It just, it cut it, I hope it cut it to the bone in a way where it's allowing, like you say, the reader to co-create with the with the writer, I think. That's really yeah. special. I think it I think it would be a great thing. I think we've done this, might have done this on one of Daddy, Danny's podcasts to, to look at the first draft of a scene yeah. and then to look at the what's, what's about the 10th or 11th draft or what makes yeah. it into the final book. We did. And we did that with your book. We did yeah, that with, yeah, um, did. oh, sorry, it's, this is, what was it? This is Us, Us is, what was it called? Uh, if Not Us. Yeah, we did it with If Not, not Us. Because yeah. um, it was like, a different well, title when we looked at it. Yeah. And um, it did, it changed so much. It's really incredible. Yeah. I've got the same with the start of that, um, my new book. Um, I've got the exact same thing. Um, mm. I actually taught it in a course recently, but I was shocked when I looked at it. I was like, 
as I went through it, as I was teaching it, I read the first iteration and I thought, this is not very good. Oh no. <laughs> and I was like, I really hope by the final I've made it better. And when I got yeah. to the final, I was like, okay, good. I actually, yeah, I made this a bit better, yeah. but it is. I've, I've been going, I've been going back and writing a few short stories recently. And I realized that that's, that's a real craft that you can bring to, uh, to long form writing mm. is that craft of the way in which every single word, every sentence has to work for you in a short story. Um, but we tend to get so verbose, we've got 80,000 words to work with mm. in a novel. And mm -hmm. but once you start cutting, and if you apply that same principle that you apply to writing a short story to, uh, to long form, it inevitably makes it a better book, I think. I think so. I've never. Um, the, only, the, the other thing I was going to say about, yeah, you know, yeah, um, was that this is the first novel that I've read that's actually included the pandemic, and um, right, there's yeah. kind of there's, there's subplots in it about anti-vaxxers and you know the protagonist forever having to mask up when he goes into inside, mm. and um, there are deniers and conspiracy theorists, and I think it was really well done because the pandemic doesn't dominate the story at all. At all. It's just there in the background. Part of it, yeah. And I've read I think a couple that's... of books like that. I've read the, the latest Chris Hammer does that. And right. There's a few, there's a few, those authors, especially I think crime writers who tend to churn them out a bit more regularly. Um, yeah. It is a part yeah, of the world. It's a pretty quick turnaround, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I don't know. How but I think it's a decision we're all making as writers at the moment. Like, do we include the pandemic or not? Um, and unless you're writing, as, as you have recently, historical fiction or deliberately dating your novels so that they're pre-pandemic, mm. um, it's, it's kind of in much the same way, I think, that we make decisions around social media and the use of mobiles in our, mm. in our, in our stories um, and whether we, because of they, they really complicate storytelling. Yes. Um, because, because of that, what, what every character should have almost instantaneous access to information. And it makes it harder to, to uh, I reckon, makes it hard to build suspense through a story, maybe yeah. Um, uh, yeah, dramatic tension. I think it um, also, though, it to me, they things like that that are these hot button, or not a hot button, but like they tend to just dominate the story. And so as soon as you start to, as soon as I would add mask wearing into um, or the pandemic or any sort of aspect of it into mm -hmm. a story that I'm writing, to me, I sort of feel like it's my duty to then go and explore that in a way that's like, why have it in there otherwise? And then yeah. if I were to do that, that's not the book that I'm interested in writing. Like I want mm -hmm. my book to be about this specific character or this specific relationship and having this would complicate it in a way that wouldn't add to the other thing. Um, things with you know, technology, um, nearly anything you include in a story, hey, like it can end up dominating yeah. and then maybe that might take you away from your original intent yeah i think we i think we're going to see you know i've already seen novels that are like deliberately set in the 1980s because they don't have to deal with technology then yeah um and that the, what i was going to say about disha what he does really well here is that he includes the pandemic in a, in a realistic way but it's kind of in an everyday sort of context that's really um, cool. and yeah. so it doesn't it doesn't end up being a story about the pandemic or yeah. that part of it dominating the narrative. Yeah. Um, it's just there. Yeah. And I think it's kind of, this is this is the decision too that he's obviously take, taken is that, well, people already know this stuff. Mm. All I have to do is have it in the background and they will understand. 
So I don't necessarily have to go and and explain the whole thing. Um, Mm. And I'm thinking about his previous novel too, the the one set down in the Mornington Peninsula, which kept referencing um, news was coming out of Wuhan in China about, you know, about a, a, a virus. Wow. And that's okay. as far as it got in the story. His you know? fingers on the pulse then, wow. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, I think he was obviously writing it, you know, during the pandemic, so. Yeah, oh, that's really clever. And I, I like, I'm, I just, yeah, I need to get a whole, like, that's a whole series of books. I haven't read any, like, very sadly. I need to get onto that because that's a whole series of yeah. four that I can have over the, the break. That's really cool. Yeah, yeah. Um I'm I'm sorry, just, just the people at home. Mark looks like he's reading something. Are you good? <laughs> um, I was just looking for what the name of that. It's the way it is now. Um, okay, is the the most recent one that's set on the on the Mornington Peninsula. Um, yeah. Again, it's a river. I'm looking forward to diving in. Um, yeah. All right. Thank you, Mark. Um, so when this comes out, it should be January first. So you know, get along to getting some of these books out. Mark's also a wonderful author i think all his books at the moment have come out have been sort of towards the older young adult what would you sort of say your books are aimed at but everyone can yeah upper end young adult upper end young adult but you know like everything like i read runt by craig sylvie um just a few weeks ago and i was equally as moved by that as any piece of literature you know what i mean like I don't know whether those labels are really useful all the time. So Mark's books are awesome. You should totally check them out if you haven't already. But, uh, yeah, Mark, thank you for being part, man. I appreciate you being here. Um, So uh, I do an intro and stuff a bit later on, but I'm I'm here with the remarkable Mirandi, who is wonderful, and we are definitely going to schedule in an actual in-person meetup next year, I feel, with Real Burgers and Real Beers. Um, Absolutely. But I've gathered you here today, Mirandi, because this is coming out on January 1st. There's going to be people who are, you know, on the beach, listening to this podcast, relaxing on holidays, probably looking around and thinking, I really want some great books to read. And I Mm -hmm. wanted to ask you and a few other authors, what has been the best read of the year 2022 for you? Okay. Okay, Ben, I'm sorry. I chose two because (laughs) I really loved them and they kind of... In my mind, it's funny because they're both by Irish writers set in okay. Ireland. One's in 1975, like 1970s. One's in 1985. So they're both sort of around the Troubles area. Uh, yeah, did they, did they come out at that time originally or were they? No, 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 no. They're both from like this last year. Okay, okay. Um, yeah, so I just, and they were both just really remarkably beautiful. So the first one is Trespasses, which is by Louise Kennedy. Louise so Kennedy. it's set Louise Kennedy. So it's and trespasses is with es, like um, not ers, like it's trespasses against you. I think like from the the prayer, our Father. Yeah, the um, like <laughs> another word for sin, sort of thing, right? Yeah, trespasses. Yeah. So 1970s Belfast. It's the height of the troubles. So we've got Kushla, who's a young Catholic woman. She's a teacher, and at night time she works in this bar for her father. Mm. Um, not for her father owned it and then a brother owned it so she works there at night time and things are pretty bleak as you can imagine um and she just sort of paints Belfast so beautifully all that time so beautifully the characters are amazing Mm -hmm. uh the situations are amazing and really like I read it probably earlier this year and and it's just really stayed with me 
And what happens is she meets um, Michael Agnew, who is, he's an older man, he's a Protestant lawyer, and they eventually have kind of an affair. So it's kind of a love story, but it's it's also really complicated by the politics of the day and, you know, yeah. and being in Belfast. So what I really loved about, this is her debut no- novel, and I only oh, just wow. okay. read that today, actually, and then I saw that she does have a collection of short fiction out. And I immediately downloaded it on my (laughs) iBooks because she's just this, like her writing is just so clean. And like I said, her characters are, you know, absolutely stay with you. So it was just a really beautiful story and book. And then the second book I chose is Claire Keegan's Small Things Like These, which is a novella. And you've probably seen it all over social media. It's just so beautiful. You definitely can read it like in a sitting that's um, divine writer. That's also up your rally too, though, right? Because you you've also done um, you've also published a very remarkable novella. So you <laughs> love that sort of form. Well, I do. I do love that form, and I don't love a big book anyway. <laughs> like, yeah. and I really like. I guess maybe what I like in the writing of it and in the reading of it, a novella is that um, you're following. I mean, you're putting, you can put sort of deep ideas in there, but you're following one, mm-hmm. I guess, uncomplicated arc. It's a, if yeah, you know what I mean? It's a, it's a, it's a burrowed down. Well, you it's just like a it. deep dive. Yeah. But you just said the um, same thing with The Trespasses by Lu- Louise Kennedy. You said the same thing. You said that it, the thing you liked about it was that it was clean. And what I took. Well, the to- writing was clean. The writing's very clean, very realist. Unfussy, um, though, right? Like unfussy. Yeah. It's just a beautiful story. You get straight mm. to the characters. Um, so Claire Keegan's writing is probably more, I guess, what would be, no, it's also quite clean, maybe a tiny bit more lyrical. Yeah, okay. Um, Less real yeah. sort of stuff. Yeah, but the story is about um, this man called Bill Furlong. This is set in 1985. So he's married. He has five daughters. He works hard, but, you know, life can be tough. Um, so when he was young, his mum and he were deserted by the father. He mm-hmm. was brought up by, and they were sort of employed, I guess, by an, a Protestant woman. So it's that same sort of political tensions. Um, and then what happens is, what happens in the story is he sees what happens at the local convent, which is, um, so that's where things come to a head for him emotionally, I guess. So he, and the convent is sort of a historical reflection on, the actual Magdalene laundries that ran for two or 300 years. But what they did is they really exploited, I guess, girls who were, you know, pregnant out of wedlock, blah, blah, blah. Right. And, and it's come out that quite horrible things happened. So he sees one thing, emotionally has to cope with it or make decisions, mm-hmm. um, which also reflects, I guess, um, like I read one review that was like he's like, every man so it's also reflecting just sort of moral choices I guess as well you know and that this happened for years and people turned a blind eye so all those sort of things but also it's a deep dive into his life and where he's at in his life and how that sort of um I guess inspires his actions Mm. so yeah so they were both really touching really beautifully written and yeah, I like that. Them. All that in a novella them. too, like that's actually quite. Um, oh, it just it sounds like it sounds complex. So like it beautiful, like it's big, like a big story, but it's all complex. yes. 
And actually, you did ask me to, to talk about like how they might sort of inspire my own writing. And what yeah, I was yeah. thinking is what I love about Claire's and, and um, Kennedy's as well, actually, mm-hmm. both of them, is that they have such a light touch. Like you're not being banged over the head with this stuff. Like even, like I said, even like today I looked up reviews sort of to see this sort of bigger historical background to these books. But what I love about them and what I try to do with my writing is you are trying to write about things that are touching or, or, you know, terrible, but with a light touch and they've both done it really beautifully what do you what do you mean by that though like what do you mean when you they're say- not didactic there's no way yeah. you'd read either of them and be didactic you would just feel but they both make you feel something like they both make you feel when you say didactic do you mean um you mean that uh like there's a there's a moral message behind them yeah yeah the I, that- I even feel like that one about the magdalene um laundries or the convents mm-hmm. um I mean, that sort of thing you can you can sort of, I guess, explore in nonfiction, writing nonfiction or reading nonfiction about the yeah. atrocities. Um, but her book is, you know, just in a few words, mm. just in a few words, you, you know, it's illuminated like. Yeah, small little moments. You know, that the bigger, yeah, which is like I guess that's what it's called small things like these, yes. you know, and small things like these about, you know, his life, what makes your life worth living. I mean, we all we all have these questions mm. and it's following his, you know, his journey with those questions. Do you feel like, do you feel like there's also a type, because I haven't read either of these books, they both sound really interesting. Right. Yeah. Do you feel like there's a type of uh, a subtlety in also the emotional content of the book? Because, uh, like, you, I, I read some books and there's these big, huge, dramatic moments and they will sweep you up sometimes. Mm, but mm. I often find the really moving books are really, there's really these subtle little touches that you're not even aware that they're pulling on these strings mm. and these little moments. Like, would you, how would you classify these? Are these big sort of dramatic moments or do you feel like? No, I think that's what I do mean. Like, you're, you're totally right. Like, they're just sort of touched upon and especially, say, in Claire Keegan's book, they're touched upon, but it all comes together. Like, you know, like yeah. his actions or thoughts, it all, it all comes together. You know, like you read, you read things or you watch movies and you're just like the motivation's not there. Like, yes. yep. you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. In these books, especially Claire's, the, you know, the, he's painted so well that you know in both in both books like what they do eventually makes sense mm-hmm. yeah yeah but it's or like, how they emotionally respond makes sense yeah. yeah and I think like a brilliant book will make it make sense to you intuitively and you don't sort of to me at least when I'm watching these stories and I'm thinking too much in my mind, um, or I'm reading a story or I'm watching a TV show or something like that and I'm thinking, like, they wouldn't do that. That doesn't make any sense for that character, right? Yeah. But, yeah. like, the brilliance of books like what these sound like is that it's, like, it's just emotionally you're invested in it and it just feels right and it's not like yes. you overthink it so much, you know. I, I just, it kind of makes me, um, 
And it's it's it feels so natural too. I'm sure these books mm. are like that, right? Like it I think, feels the I type think what of it is too. And yeah. you know, like you were saying, what how it might, um, how I might write, try to write myself. Like mm-hmm. it, is that um, you know, like so I guess what you were saying about like um, so th- both books are set sort of in the troubles. These huge things are happening, and one of one's about those Magdalene laundries. So these huge things are happening, but actually, what you're reading about are individuals. I think that's yeah, what that's, that's what makes a difference. Like neither of them are banging on about the troubles at all, mm-hmm. like or you know, like the politics as such, politics as such, except for how it might um, impinge on the world of that individual. Yeah, that's. Do you know what I mean? And I think that's yeah. actually where you find the empathy or that yes. connection with characters is actually that it's that's what I mean so I guess it's not non-fiction in that actually you're just looking at individuals like the individual girl at the laundry or the individual like Bill or you know this mm. this young woman who falls for the lawyer like it's it's just these individual stories and how their lives yeah are impacted by um these bigger things that you know that then you can go look up yourself <laughs> they're not I- actually in the book I think that's something that I think fiction does in a, in a like I would say in a, to me at least in a stronger way than nonfiction in that when you're reading nonfiction, you're sort of in your mind thinking about like, well, here's my politics, here's my ideals. I don't quite align with yeah. that. I align with this. And it's very acad- academic. Whereas mm. you can read a novel and it does such a good job of painting the picture of how these events have shaped this person's life, right? That even if you do end up disagreeing politically or idealistically or whatever like that, you still have empathy for person like that. And then mm-hmm. when it comes time to discuss your own ideas about situations, it's like invested in these novels and all these people. It's, like it's like you're experiencing a person's life. Mm, it's like, oh, that's right. I can care about Different how this is. Yeah. yeah, and that's, yeah. I think that's just way more powerful to me at yeah. least. Yeah, I think that's, yeah, I also, I agree. I think that's the strength of fiction. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. I've read a lot of books where I've disagreed um, idealistically with certain choices of the characters, mm. but I certainly don't then judge them for it. You know, it's like a no, yeah. thing. When you, yeah, when you can see that emotional or background, that sort mm. of paints the whole picture. Yeah. Yeah. So anyway, I really loved both these books. And then my next book that I'm writing, I have a residency. It just happens. I didn't choose these books because they happen to be an island. I chose to read them because other people loved them so much. Yeah. But it just happens that in March I'm off to a residency in Ireland so- and my next book starts, um, it's, uh, she was, they were called Mayo Orphans, so women in the 1850s, I guess, and on who came yeah. to Australia. They, were, they were, came from County Mayo and my great great grandma I think or great 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 grandma was a Mayo orphan who came here then so I'm going over there to do a bit of research and writing for my next book yes so that just but that's just like coincidental a nice coincidence that then these two of my favorite books this year were by Irish women I was going to ask you about your connection because but yeah you said that this felt like real Belfast like you've obviously got a connection with Belfast or no I think um well Mayo's in Ireland so it's it's um are both of them in no this is a small irish town one's in ireland and one's in northern ireland right okay so yeah yeah yes yeah, both no, sort of I, set in those yeah like one was 1975 oh 70s one's 1985 so yeah i've never had a residency in ireland mirandy so 
No. <laughs> I don't know Ireland as well. <laughs> well, I, I've never been there. I've never been there. Like That's my so mum's side of the family is all Irish, you know, so they do a lot of, which is something I want to sort of explore in my book because they do a lot of talking about Ireland and, mm. you know, good old home. You know how they are and they've got their stories about like Ireland and relatives yeah. and, you know, blah, blah, blah. But um, but actually I have never been there. So That's so cool. Go and have a look at it. That's really cool. How, how long are you there for? I'm there for about six weeks. That's exciting. That's I really know. Fun. Must be so looking forward so to good. it. Yeah. Yes, I am. Very. All right. Well, when you when you get back, though, we're going to have a chat. Uh, yes. Podcast. About my mm. next book, which yeah, comes book. out in September. Yes. Yeah. Very excited for that. Excited to catch up with beers. Thank you, Ben. I'll hear all about Ireland. I'm sure. <laughs> you will. You will. Okay. All right. Well, thanks, Mirandy. Okay. Uh, thanks, then, Ben. Um, I'll uh, I'll just stop recording. Oh, that's awkward. <laughs> <laughs> I'm a professional. I swear. <laughs>